Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Good morning. My name is Nicole, and I'm part of the Forbes Satterwhite uh, community group. Today, we're going to be reading out of John 2, 1 through 11, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you, Nicole. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. You can uh, fill out a Connect card. We'd love an opportunity to connect with you, to serve you, to see how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Levi will bring you one. If you're on your uh, phone or your tablet, uh, we use the ESV. All right, today we see Jesus at a wedding. And I love weddings. Um, I love going to weddings. I love officiating weddings. I have officiated a few of y'all's, and it's always a good time. Back when I was in college, I enjoyed being in weddings. I love dancing with my wife and my kids and vanilla ice freestyle at weddings. Um, they are, that's a real thing. They are usually a lot of fun. Weddings are meant to be such a special moment for this new husband and his new wife, and a lot of times they are. Sometimes they're not, like when the groomsmen act like idiots, or when the best man says something off-color in his speech. But the act of a wedding is a covenant, the marriage covenant. It is a sacred promise that is meant to be in place until we die. Culturally, it isn't as highly valued as God says it should be, but it is the joining of two whole, unique, and distinct lives together in one flesh in a covenant that is meant to be in place until the death between the husband or the wife, and it's between the couple and God. So this is not a sermon about marriage or family, but before we dive into this text this morning, I do want to say something about marriage, and if you're married, this is for you. If you're dating, this is for you. If you're single and looking for a spouse, this is for you. 
I was reading a commentary for this passage this week by a pastor named Josh Moody, and he was talking about your marriage as your pulpit. He says, if we're married, we're to see our marriages not only as a place in which we encourage each other and as vehicles for bringing up any children that we might have, but our marriages are also pedestals. They're platforms. They're pulpits for revealing the Christ who adorned this marriage in Cana and of whom all Christian marriages are intended to speak. Make it your practice to pray together. Make it your practice to read the Bible together. Make it your practice to speak of Christ to each other and to others. How we live out our marriage commitment is one of the most powerful ways that we have to proclaim Christ's glory in the world. One of the church's strongest apologetics, one of the best ways our belief in Christ is evidence to the world is in our homes. How we honor one another within our home, husbands and wives, speaks to what you believe about who Christ is. So honor your spouses. <laughs> honor your spouses. Point your kids towards the gospel. Single people in here pursuing spouses or dating people in here pursuing spouses. Pursue someone that is going to challenge you and point you towards Jesus. And in the waiting, while you wait for marriage, be well married to Christ. Be well married to Jesus. He is your bridegroom. This is the command for marriage and family throughout all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the wedding was a symbolic picture of the fact that God and his people were united in a covenant. The weddings were a symbol of the type of relationship that God had with his people. So it's fitting that as we approach John 2, that we see Jesus' first public ministry take place, his first miracle take place at this wedding. John will call all the miracles in the book of John signs. Jesus' first sign is taking place at this wedding in Cana. So I want to take a look at this story with you today. And there is a temptation, as I look around this room and know a lot of you very well, and know a lot of you have grown up in church, there is this temptation, especially if you have been a Christian for a while, or if you've been in church for any length of time, to check out on some of these familiar stories. Like, I've heard this one before, Pastor. I just want to encourage you not to do that this morning. I want to encourage you to pray and ask God to reveal himself in a powerful way to you this morning. The first chapter of John has pushed us to question, who is Jesus? And so I want you to allow God, if you're willing, allow this story to reveal more of himself to you. Who is Jesus? I think perhaps another way of asking that this morning would be, why should I even care? Why should I follow Jesus? So I submit that to you this morning. 
Why follow Jesus? My hope is that as believers and as a church, we are constantly in awe of who Jesus is. My hope is that we will have an encounter with Christ this morning and see Jesus for who he truly is. And maybe, maybe you're discouraged or maybe you don't know Christ at all. My hope is that you would encounter him anew and afresh this morning and see that Jesus is indeed worthy to be followed. And so let's pray and we're going to dive into this familiar story of scripture. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, thank you for becoming a man to save sinners like us. Lord, thank you for the covenant. Thank you for this wedding in Cana that reminds us of the union that you have with your people and your bride, the church. Lord, may we just rest in a humble confidence that you are who you say you are. You are going to do what you say you're going to do, that we can trust you, Lord, that you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. Just remind us of our need for you. Lord, help us to be well married to Christ. May our identities as sons and daughters Lord, may our identity as the bride of Christ push us to holiness and faithfulness and obedience. Church, if you're willing, um, I'd ask that you would pray for me. Nothing specific, just that you would pray for me. And also pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed and encouragement where Encouragement is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen, amen. All right, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. All right, so there is a lot going on in these first five verses. Let's unpack it uh, together. We need to spend a few time, a little time with these, with these few verses so we know what's going on. We, 2,000 years removed from this event, have the benefit of knowing what the remainder of Jesus' time on earth is going to look like. From this point in the Bible, Jesus will spend the next three years with a group of 12 men going around this region teaching people that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Our greatest need would be met and satisfied in Christ. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve to disobey God, to rebel against 
God, we then are sinful from our conception because we have inherited a sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because we are sinful, that makes us treasonous rebels against God. And we deserve to die for our sin. And we deserve God's wrath against our sin. But this was not what we've received. Our sin debt has been paid because Jesus went to the cross to satisfy the wrath of God against our sinful rebellion. Sin is more than just making bad choices and making mistakes. It is rebellion against the holy God who is the rightful ruling and reigning king of the world. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. The life that you and I were supposed to live and couldn't and wouldn't. Jesus will be arrested and falsely tried and sentenced to die on a cross. He died the death that you and I were supposed to die. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He bore the wrath of God that was rightly ours to bear. Jesus bore that against sinful humanity. He took the weight of that on himself. He was buried and raised to life three days later, and he has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But here in this text today, we see he and his disciples at a wedding. And Jesus' mom is there too. So weddings in the first century were like week-long affairs, the reception would last a long time. There would be this ceremony, and then there would be this long after party. And it was customary at these wedding uh, receptions for the groom's family to provide the wine. And so who knows how long this wedding has been going on, but by verse 3 in our text today, there is a problem. Mother Mary walks up to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. She is clearly concerned for this family and for their honor, so she comes to Jesus. Knowing that Jesus could probably do something about the situation, if you remember the circumstances about Jesus' birth, Mary was a virgin. And Jesus was conceived miraculously, supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Her oldest son was no ordinary baby. <laughs> and Jesus' response to his mother, if you read it through a 21st century Western lens, is kind of funny. But don't do that. Don't read it through that. Don't read it through our cultural lens. Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother. This is the first century Jewish equivalent of like how British... Uh, movies or whatever, TV, British people. I don't know any British people. Uh, but I, I have seen on the shows, because Kendra watches them, where they're like, my lady, okay? Um, or like the French people are like, madame or madam. Or the West Texans would be like, ma'am. You know, like, it's that kind of thing. This is not, this is not a lack of respect. Jesus is not... John is not implying for us a lack of respect from Jesus towards his mom. And it certainly doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care. 
at the, uh, at the end of the book of John, we will see Jesus hanging on the cross. And he looks down and he sees his mom standing next to his best friend, the apostle John. And he looks at them and he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's ensuring that his mom is going to be cared for after he has ascended. So it's not that Jesus doesn't care about his mom. But there are some things we do need to take note of in this exchange. Mary is the mother of Jesus. But at the foot of the cross, she will learn that she, too, is a needy sinner. Mary must first approach Jesus like everyone else. Jesus and his mother's relationship has fundamentally changed now that Jesus has begun his public ministry. So no matter who you are, there is only one appropriate way to approach Christ. And that is we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. One commentator said it like this, Mary must no longer think of Jesus as merely her son. For the more she conceives of him as her son, the more also will she suffer when he suffers. Mary must begin to look upon Jesus as her Lord. So if this is true about the mother of Jesus, it is equally true about Jesus' disciples who are with them at this wedding, and it is ultimately true about those of us who would claim to be followers of Christ. And another thing we need to take note of here is this. When Jesus says his hour has not yet come, what's he saying? Theologically speaking, Jesus is a member of the Trinity. We've discussed this in the, in the prologue of John John chapter 1, 1 through 14. But what this means is that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And since Jesus is a member of the Trinity, and since Jesus is eternal, he then by nature and character is fully God. And we believe that God by his nature and his character works for our good. Yes, but also he works first and foremost for his own glory, meaning God is reigning supreme, and God also knows that he is reigning supreme. No one has to tell God, hey, you're the, you're the man. Just in case you were unaware, God, you're the goat. No, no one has to tell him that. So when Jesus is saying that his hour has not yet come, he is clearly indicating that he is aware of the fact that he is accomplishing this task entrusted to him by the Father. Every single detail of Jesus' life has been definitively marked in the eternal decree. Everything that Jesus would do, every miracle that Jesus would do, would have a stipulated moment. And so when Jesus is telling his mom that his hour has not yet come, he's saying that when the moment to act is here, I will act. But I will not do so until that time. And so Mary responds, not with discouragement, not with frustration, but with a hopeful anticipation that her son, the God-man, was going to act. 
in a spirit of complete submission to Christ and a confident expectation that Jesus can and will act. She tells the waiters, do whatever he tells you to do. I love this part. This is the only time in the entire Bible where we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, give anybody instructions. They have been preserved for us. She says, do what Jesus says. And I'm not sure there are any better instructions for us. Listen to Jesus. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus gives some instructions. They fill these giant jars full of water, over a hundred gallons of water. And Jesus, without any magic words or without any wave of a wand, turns this water into wine. Some of you are like, a hundred gallons of wine. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, apparently, apparently, this was a good year for the wine too because the master of the feast was raving about how good this wine was. Jesus comes to this wedding and saves the day. But why does this matter? There is church, Christians, people that have been in church or Christians a long time. There is a great danger in knowing a lot about the Bible. Knowing a lot about God. Knowing all these stories and telling me what Jesus did and never actually getting to the heart of the gospel. There's a real danger in knowing the Bible and knowing things about Jesus, but not really knowing Jesus. So what does this story teach us about Christ? The application here is not, hey, when you run out of wine, get down on your knees and pray. That's not the application of this story. We have to come to terms with both Christ's power and his glory. Glory is a Bible word that gets thrown around a lot. It carries with it this weight, this heaviness. In our modern terms, our modern times, it's a term that we use to bestow worth or value on something or someone. So think about a sporting event. The Super Bowl is today. By the way, um, Taylor Swift makes the Super Bowl her first year in the NFL. That's elite. Matt told me that yesterday, so uh, anyways, I was just trying that one out. Uh, the Super Bowl is today, okay, and the Chiefs are probably going to win, and they will receive the Lombardi Trophy, okay? But there's also an individual award, 
It's called the MVP or the most valuable player. And if the Chiefs win, which I'm pretty confident they will, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback, will probably win this too. So the team wins, but one guy receives a higher honor. He receives the higher honor as the best player during the most important game of the season. So when we're discussing Jesus, Jesus is deserving of the highest honor. Jesus is deserving of praise. He is deserving of the most honor and most praise that we can offer because he is all-loving and he is all-powerful and he is worthy to receive this glory. John Piper defines glory as giving honor or credit where honor and credit are due. So here's a couple things I want to point out as we're moving towards the end of our time together. I think it's important for us to note these these jars, these pitchers that Jesus uses for wine decanters. The Jewish laws had some rules about washing your hands and washing your feet before you came into your house or before you sat down to eat. They also had some laws about sacrificing animals to atone for your sins. These laws were in place to set the Jewish nation apart from the pagan nations that surrounded them. They were meant to show that the nation of Israel was purified by their relationship to God. These were really important at big events like weddings. We have these jars filled with water um, available to the guests so that when the guests go in, they can wash their hands and their feet, therefore ritually purifying themselves before they go into this event. Wine, on the other hand, in the Old Testament, uh, in the first half of the the Bible, was was a symbolic picture of the covenant that would find its fulfillment in Christ. Jesus institutes the new covenant at the Last Supper. And because of his resurrection, this new covenant means that the Old Testament law was no longer the standard, but that Jesus has replaced the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled its requirements. He's fulfilled its demands by keeping it perfectly. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is faithful when we are not. Jesus obeyed the law fully and perfectly, and we could never do that. Jesus created a way for us to be reconciled and restored back to God. Jesus destroyed the sacrificial system by becoming the complete and all-sufficient sacrifice for us. One commentator says this, Christ has come into the world to fulfill and terminate the old order and to replace it by new worship. This surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water. A new day is here, and it's a day of joy, a day of celebration, of partying, of feasting. It's the day of a wedding. With that in view, we have to deal with Jesus himself. Jesus takes these jars as a picture of the Old Testament law, and he fills them to the brim with wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. In this moment, 
Through this miracle, Jesus is making a bold proclamation about himself. He is declaring that the Messiah has come. This Jewish nation has received their Messiah. They got the Messiah that they were promised, but they didn't get the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted to be liberated from Rome. They were wanting a political savior. But Jesus came to liberate us from our ultimate enemy of sin and death, which is our biggest problem. The real problem for the Jews was not their Roman oppressors, but the sin that oppressed them. And the same is true for you and me. The same is true for us. Our biggest problems are not financial. They're not professional. They are not sexual. They're not political. Our biggest problems are ourselves. Because we are sinful. And listen... If you think otherwise, you have a wrong view of sin, and you have a distorted view of God's holiness. We need a Savior because we are sinful. We need a way to be saved from God's wrath and reconciled back to God. Jesus is making a declaration. The old way of approaching God through the blood of lambs and ritual purification is passing away. And a new day is here. When we will approach God in humble confidence by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has taken away our sins. Jesus shows up at this wedding and he performs this miracle, this sign, as John calls it. And this will serve as the head or the clue for all remaining miracles. It's as if to say that if you don't understand this miracle, you will miss the point of all other miracles. And that means that something better is here. Jesus does miracles while on earth. God can and still does miracles today. The greatest miracle on this side of the resurrection is that God saves sinners, that God redeems, rescues, purchases, and restores a people to himself still today. Christ saves, and that's a miracle. Christ saves not because you're lovable, not because you're lovable in and of yourselves, but because he is loving. And we worship God through Christ to the glory of God for the salvation. God is glorified in saving sinners. Our salvation is a miracle. And these miracles exist for the glory of the Lord and the good of the church, not for the glory of man. This passage reinforces that. The miracles of Jesus in the New Testament always point away from themselves and point towards the one performing the miracle. The same is true here. The miracles happen through Christ. All miracles point towards Christ. Every miracle has a physical component that is revealing something profoundly spiritual to us. 
So think about every wedding you have ever been to. There's a hierarchy of weddings. This is uh, not written down anywhere. This is the Tanner House hierarchy. Um, There's a lot of emphasis, and rightly so, placed on the bride, and then her mom, and then the rest of her family, and then like the groom's mom, and then like way down here is the groom somewhere. Uh, He is there. He's on the list, but like the hierarchy. It's the bride. Everyone's celebrating the bride, right? Uh, And that's great. We have this couple, and we celebrate their love. We celebrate this love together, right? Look at this wedding, though. Look at this wedding. Everything else seems to be in the background. Who's the bride? Who's the groom? Why is Mary there? The scriptures are silent. But one thing the scriptures are not silent about is that Jesus is there. Jesus is there. Everything else is a shadow. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Christ is made visible, and that is the glory of God. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is revealed here in power and glory at this wedding. And here is what we have to learn from his presence and his activity. It is Jesus Christ who honors the bonds of marriage. And this should not surprise us. Because according to John's description of Jesus, Christ himself is the bridegroom who by means of his incarnation, his miraculous birth, and his redemptive work to save sinners through his death and resurrection, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and through his ultimate return, Jesus will come to his bride, the church. Jesus is pleased to honor this event that is a symbol of his own relationship to his people. This story, first and foremost, should remind us that there is another wedding coming. In Revelation, we see another wedding where all of the redeemed, all of the believers of Jesus from every tribe, nation, and tongue on the face of the earth, from age to age, will join together and drink the wine of the new covenant together with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The point of the Bible is not that Jesus could change water into wine. The point of the Bible is not that Jesus can heal sick people so he can handle my situation too. The point of the Bible is that through Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, your situation has already been changed. You who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You, who were once dead, have now been made alive through Christ. You, who were once an enemy, are now a friend or a son. Not or a son, a friend and a son and a daughter. That's probably or a daughter, excuse me. We're no longer enemies of God. We have access to God by the Holy Spirit through Jesus' cross. 
We don't have to slaughter animals anymore. We don't have to go through a priest anymore. Jesus fulfilled this and made these steps unnecessary. And now because of the blood of Jesus Christian, you are a priest. We are a royal priesthood. He lives in us now because he has made us worthy by the washing of us. He has washed us white as snow. He takes what is old and he makes it new again. He takes what is broken and ugly and dead and lifeless and he gives them new life. And listen to me, he has declared you excellent and all for his glory. The point is this. If you're still an unbeliever, you have been separated. You are separated from Christ. And you are bound for an eternity separated from Christ in hell. But Christ is calling you to faith and repentance today. And listen, your problems most likely won't magically disappear. But you have a Savior who wants you. You have a Savior who knows you and sees you and loves you and is offering something better than your sin that is leading you to nowhere good. But we see that Jesus is also the one that bestows gifts on us lavishly. He supplies us so abundantly in the physical realm. He will not be less generous to us in the spiritual realm. Christ's giving and generous spirit has no limits. He, he acts for our good. He acts for his glory. And all his gifts are the very best. Jesus, by his grace, bestows honor on us. When our sin cries out for our shame, Jesus bestows honor on you. Jesus in his grace, the unmerited favor of God, provides an abundance of quality wine to spare the bridegroom in our text from an embarrassing loss of faith. Jesus gives the best wine up to the brim. More importantly for us than even this, Jesus' love is made effective by his equally infinite power. So I don't know a single one of you and if you can, I would like to see this. But I don't know a single one of you who can bend the laws of physics and turn water into wine. You can't turn water into anything. But Jesus can. Jesus can operate outside the limits of science because he is the creator of science. Beyond transforming water into wine, Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus rises from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit of God in order to prove that his power over sin and death is for real. And Jesus turns spiritually dead people into sons and daughters of the Most High God. Jesus is the Son of God, full of grace and glory. And because of this miracle, the faith of the disciples were strengthened by this sign. So we have some choices to make, church. This is a miracle that we can either accept or deny. There's no third option. 
The prologue of John tells us that some are going to accept Christ and some aren't. These signs, these miracles, they point to the reality of who Jesus is. A lot of us approach Christ like a cosmic genie or an impersonal creature somewhere out there who when we need something we can ask and then we don't consider him again until we need something else. And then if we don't get what we're asking for, we get upset and the temptation is to think or act or believe that God is against you or that God doesn't care about you. But if the life and ministry of Jesus teaches us anything, it's that this line of thinking just is not true. Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, who was there with the Father at creation, is not distant. He's personal. So personal, in fact, that he was willing to step out of perfection and endure your sin and your shame on your cross. And more than that, he rose from the grave and he has given us the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. So now if you are a believer in Jesus, God is not only present, but God lives inside of you. Because of the blood of Christ, Jesus himself, through his Holy Spirit, is interceding for you. The Spirit advocates for you. Christ for his glory and the glory of the Father, wants to redeem your sinful life. Listen to me. The true mark of Christianity is not getting everything we could ever want. Following Christ does not mean a struggle-free, easy life. What it does mean is that we have a great high priest in Jesus who sees us and who knows us and who can identify with us because he has been tempted in every way that we are tempted and he has proven victorious for us. So if we can trust him with our eternities, we can certainly trust him with our todays. Jesus provides us life, abundant life for us. So are you trusting him today? Are you trusting him right now? Are you doing life in your own strength and hitting Jesus up when something feels too big for you? Or are you going to him for your daily bread, your daily strength, your daily ability, your daily sustenance? The invitation of the gospel of John is a constant refrain to come and see. The invitation from Christ is unchanging. 2,000 years removed from this wedding, Christ is inviting you into a better life. Christ is inviting you out of your unbelief. Christ is inviting you into faith and into dependency on him to come and see that he is better. In God, through Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, we have everything we need. Christ is calling you out of your unbelief this morning. Christ wants to hear your request. Yes, but more importantly, he wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your fears. He wants your anxieties. He wants your insecurities. And in spite of your sin, he wants you. And he wants you to, sh to live for him. And he wants to show you how to live for him and how to live a life devoted to and dependent on you. Yeah.
If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you. If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you. He doesn't simply tolerate you. He is pleased with you. He delights in you. He has given you grace, the unmerited favor of God, not because we deserve it, but because he delights in doing so. And it brings him glory. God wants you. Not because you can do anything for him. Your relationship is not transactional. He doesn't need a thing from you. But he loves you because you are his, because you belong to him, because you are his creation. He loves you. Will you trust him? Will you lay down those fears? Will you lay down your guilt at his feet by faith this morning? So why follow Jesus? Because he's worthy. What wondrous love is this? Sinners, repent, rest. See that the Lord is gracious and merciful and strong enough to defeat sin and death for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.